So we are looking for his coming and asking for our hearts to be set right. To let nothing else reign in our hearts besides him. That's, you know, that is really what Advent's about. Having him strengthen our hearts that we'll be blameless when we see his coming in preparation for it. Advent, what does that word mean? Coming. We're looking for his coming. So those, and so we're talking about this season of Advent, or what are some of these lessons for Advent about getting our hearts right, of taking this opportunity? It, it doesn't mean, again, it's not in opposition to the joys of the Christmas season you may have. Although I would say that I think all of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you never exactly look like your culture, should you? Our walk through that Christmas season should always be distinctive. But I'm, not, I'm just saying Advent is a unique time that God gives us prior to that to do a work in your heart, much like Lent. And so we're actually be looking through uh, Luke's, Luke, going through these beginning chapters of Luke 1 and 2 as we go through these four Sundays in Advent and looking at different lessons for Advent. Today we're looking uh, at the passage which John read, which is uh, often called the Benedictus. Um, that's the great song of Zechariah. Magnificat is Mary's song, Benedictus. Latin. I don't know why I said that. I thought it was just, it sounded good. I just, you know, I try to sound certain words make me sound and feel more intelligent. And Benedictus did, and I need those, ins- I need those assurances. Uh, <clears throat> it's a dark, heavy world we live in. So, to put it in, <laughs> to put it in context, um, focus. Right? Um, this is uh, Zacharias' after the birth of John the Baptist. What's interesting is Luke begins his entire gospel not with Jesus, but with, or with Mary or Joseph. He begins his gospel with Zechariah, you know, the, the priest. And at the scene at the temple, when he is offering a, uh, the incense offering, which is often symbolic of prayers, actually, unto God. And there, if you remember, he's, an, he's elderly, and his, his wife is elderly and barren, and, uh, which is you know, a great shame in that culture. But keep in mind, that's a good thing to remember, too. It's not such a shame, because they're actually become God's stars. And that makes you think of Abraham and Sarah. That current picture is something you're supposed to pick up. And Luke, especially these first chapters of Luke. But then an angel has an encounter with an angel who says she's going to give birth to a son who's going to be a great prophet, John the Baptist. And, uh, and we're going to talk more about this encounter in later weeks, but uh, he, was, uh, he was struck so he couldn't speak. And so he comes out of there, and everyone just goes, wow, he saw a vision, he can't speak. Something big happened in Jerusalem at the temple. And then, um, and then it, now we come to the time of his birth, and Elizabeth's having her baby, and she gives birth to a son. The neighbors and relatives hear the Lord's shown her mercy. The you know, elderly woman who's barren is miraculously giving a birth. So this is, like, like a, this is how God acts, and you see it, and you know that he is intervening in history. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise him. They're going to name after his father, Zechariah. He says, no, it's going to be John. He says, there's no, you know, there's no relatives named John. So they make signs to the father. Evidently, he appears to be deaf as well. Um, and he asks for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonish, astonishment, he writes his name as John, um, and which, by the way, John is um, with the name the, the, the angel gave him, and it means the Lord's grace. Um, it's the name of the Lord and the word grace, Yohanan. 
Immediately his mouth was open, his tongue was loose, and he began to speak, praising God. What an amazing scene. Now, the important thing you want to catch from this is it says, the neighbors were all filled with awe throughout the whole hill country of Judea. People were talking about these things. Everyone heard about this uh, thing, wondering, what is this child going to be? The Lord's hand's going to be with them. Now, what you need to catch is you see that how much this contrasts, say, to the birth of Jesus, right? A manger hidden, quiet away. This is a PR stunt. Right? No, this, it began in the temple with him and then the priest not being able to speak. Everyone's gathered around. A barren woman gives birth. Your father speaks out, suddenly praising God in the midst of it. Man, this is going everywhere. And all the hill country knows it. Everyone's going to know about this child. And they're going to ask, what is this child going to be? And then he gives basically the prophetic speech, Zachariah's song. Because this is going to accompany the story, right? This song is going to go everywhere. Remember our culture, too, right? It's an oral culture. You tell story. You know, so this, this birth, this amazing time, this sign event that looks just like the Old Testament signs we've heard of again, 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 has happened in our midst, and here is the prophetic word that came with it. So what is that prophetic word? And it says his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is a great phrase. It basically says we're dealing with the prophetic word. And keep in mind, this is not a way the scribes spoke. This is not a way rabbis spoke. This is not a way that has been spoken at this point for 400 years, right, till the close of really the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets, and it's here again. And it's big in Zechariah. I, mean, I mean, big in the Gospel of Luke. I wouldn't say the Gospel of Luke, right? Luke's other book, Acts, this is a very familiar phrase, right? Stress of the Holy Spirit coming down. People speaking through the Holy Spirit. So when you look at Luke's two books, Luke and Acts, you have a whole bunch in Acts, and then you have a whole bunch of occurrences in these first few chapters of Luke and almost nothing throughout the rest. Interesting. So these first few, it's all over the place, right? He said that, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to be upon John the Baptist at birth. You know, when uh, Mary comes in to see uh, Elizabeth, it says the Holy Spirit comes on Elizabeth, and she says, the mother of my Lord is here. You know, and she speaks prophetically like that. And, then, um, and, and so the Holy Spirit came upon Mary that she, would, that she would bear this child. And then it comes upon Zechariah. Then you'll see he comes upon uh, Jesus. And then, basically, you don't have word of him coming upon anything else. Jesus ascends, sends his Spirit on the people. Very interesting how Luke does that. You see, so a whole bunch of... But here, the main point is, this is God speaking. So what does he say? What is this child mean? What does this thing that's happening, what does it mean? What are we supposed to understand from it? What is the word that's going forth to all the people? Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Why? Because he has come, has come and redeemed his people as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. What's the main point of this whole thing of Jesus coming, of John the Baptist coming? God is bringing redemption. As he promised, right? God is fulfilling it in our midst. Right? There's nothing about necessarily about John the Baptist with that phrase. What's this child going to be? God is bringing redemption. 
in the house of his servant David, as he says, he's raising up a horn of salvation for us. He's bringing forth Messiah. And he says, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to his, our father Abraham. So basically he's fulfilling it all. The great promise, the covenant, Abrahamic covenant, is now being you know, actualized through us. And God is redeeming and blessing all people through his Messiah, and it's all coming back. God is redeeming the world. Right? This is this key idea. One thing we talked about as a, as a leadership team, we talked about one of our goals for our church, you know, to uh, see people who um, you know, know the word of God. We said, well, how, what's that really look like? To be people who want to have a biblical worldview meaning who see the world through the lens of the scriptures, this is one of the most important things you need to grasp if you want to grasp seeing the world through a biblical lens, is that the world's not as it should be now. Right? This is not the way it's supposed to be. We are living in a broken world, and the promise is to redeem it. Right? The biblical scripture, we are, you know, God, we have creation, we have broken creation, then we have the promise to restore all things. And this is really critical, because a lot of people say, you know, I don't know how many people I run into, almost every week I think at the hospital someone says, you know, they have trouble believing in God because of all the suffering and horrors in the world. How can there be a God who loves me? And I mean, it's a classic one we've all heard a million times, but really in many ways it may be um, emotionally difficult to deal with. How can God love me and I see these horrors? But intellectually and biblically it's not a problem whatsoever. You know, the, the Bible actually would say that is what we should see. The world's broken, and it should be full of death and horrors and suffering. This is what a world looks like apart from the, that when it's broken from God. You see both beauty and majesty and wonder and horrors side by side. In fact, there's one reason why I say, what is it that makes the gospel unique or that view of God and what I would consider other religions or other view of God really deficient? Because they can't handle this issue. How do you think God's so wonderful when we have all these horrors here? I actually don't think anyone else handles it, but the Bible says that's exactly what you should see. We are living in the unredeemed world. We are living in a time of brokenness, and God has promised to redeem it. And this is what he's going to do. And this is what's happening now through the coming of Jesus and John the Baptist. And look what it says will happen when we're able to do this, when he, that when he, when he fulfills all this. It says, they'll rescue us from the hand of our enemies to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It's Garden of Eden, right? We're, living with, we're serving him, right? We're, we're built to serve him in the Garden of Eden without fear, holiness and righteousness eternally, right? It's the restoration of all things. And that may not sound like a wonderful, I mean, I don't know about how it hits your modern ear, but when I think of, wow, I'm going to spend eternity as a servant, that does not sound so great, right? We love autonomy, we love power, we love independence. And, that's, and, and, and servant's even a, 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 a generous word. Same as word as slave. We're God's slaves. I think, God, this doesn't sound very good. But what you realize is actually it's the hunger of every one of our hearts. We're all built to serve. As Bob Dylan prophetically said it, y'all got to serve somebody. And it's the truth. You do something, you serve someone. If you're not serving God, who are you serving? Serving yourself? For what purpose? For whose glory? Why do you do what you do? That's what you serve. That's what you worship. We're meant to serve the Lord. That is when we work right. 
Even think about it now, you, you have a, a job. Actually, we think, is it owning a company is the ultimate glory? In some ways, when we can serve a boss who, is, you know, who knows all things, who understands a ton of things, who's really powerful, and, you can, and he understands what you're able to do and how to use what you're doing and provide for you and care for you and looks after you, man, you wanted nothing else than to serve him. How many people call it, you know, people could be in charge of a CEO of a company, they would still find their highest honor, say, to serve our country or to serve this world. It's all to serve a greater one. Anyway, we long to serve God, but right now, essentially, we, when we confess our faith in Jesus, what are we doing? We're calling him Lord. We are basically bowing our knee and saying, Lord, I'm going to serve you. But it's hard to serve him in this broken world, isn't it? Loads of distractions, loads of hardship, everything pulling us left and right. Then we'll be able to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The longing of our heart fulfilled. That's the great promise of what he's bringing about. That's what this whole season's about. This is what these first chapters in the coming of Jesus, the coming of John the Baptist, it's about the restoration of all things. And it says, you... My child, John the Baptist, right? He'll be called a prophet of the Most High. He's going to go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. He's telling me, here's what's happening. Here's what's going on. Here's what salvation is. Here's the deliverance. Here's the redemption. Here's the forgiveness that's going to be offered through Jesus to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death. Right, quoting Isaiah 9, one of the purposes, remember he says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Later on, to us a child is born, a son is given. And you see that same language. So the idea here is um, that, that, so Jesus came, died on the cross, rose from the dead, made redemption now available, and essentially now the church is carrying forth this role of John the Baptist, making the knowledge of salvation, carrying light into the midst of darkness as we long for him to come and fulfill all things. So, as we think about Advent, Advent's as we sit and we long for his coming to fulfill that. So as we think about the coming of Jesus to come and fulfill, what effect and impact does that have on us now and should it? Because it's not a side doctrine. In some ways, you would say that the return of Jesus is the foundation stone of all. It is the great hope. Right? It is the great presupposition of the rest. And fun, you don't think it's not major? when um, In China, if you want to be an officially Chinese-approved church and not be underground, you have to give up one doctrine. Which one? Return of Jesus. They are not allowed to preach on the return of Jesus in an official Chinese church. In France, when they wanted to give the Jews citizenship for the first time, although they don't believe in the return of Jesus, right? But they had to get, the Jews had to give up a doctrine. And this is like, this is Napoleon made them do that. They had to give up their idea of the Messiah's return. Or the Messiah's coming at all. Because what they realize, to preach the return of Jesus and to preach the Messiah's coming is to say what? Your government is invalid. <laughs> it is temporary and it is being overturned. Judgment Day is the return. That's, 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 my, that's the theme I like in Advent. You know, some people like the colors, the smells, the songs. I like judgment. <laughs> um, you know, but that's me. You know, it's a, and, I, and actually, judgment sounds hard, but judgment's actually a word of hope. 
it really is not this negative thing. Judgment is hope. Right? Judgment's not about meeting out punishment. Judgment's about restoration. Right? Because he wants to make the world as it was supposed to be, but in order to do that, you need to take off what, you know, you need to overturn that which is wrong. You know, the, the corrupt, evil governments, in order to be made right, they need to be, have laid bare what they're doing and in a sense judged, overthrown, so restoration is brought about. You know, you know that every, any, any kind of major change that happens in society, right, it always comes with an ugly overthrowing of whatever's there. Has to be. But that's an amazing thing. We are people of hope. Amen. It is. And, and that should impact everything that happens. That we're not tied, that this is a word of, for those who are oppressed, those living under um, dictators and horrors and evils. It says they don't stand. And they don't have victory. I mean, what happened to John the Baptist, right? This is the chosen one of God on whom the Holy Spirit is from birth. What happened to him? Herod had him beheaded at a banquet to, to, for the pleasure of his guests. You think, really? And in the world's eyes, who's going to stop him? He has all power. John the Baptist, you think you have power? I could take off your head, you're nothing. And why is it, why is it right there? Because actually Herod has no power. John the Baptist is not dead, he is risen. As Jesus later said, I'm not, I'm the, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm a God not of the dead, but of the living. John the Baptist lives, and Herod will face judgment. And as a result, we can actually have compassion on Herod, for we know what he faces. It's amazing. I think in history, some of the Christians have been able to have compassion. Corey Tem Boom, compassion for in the, in the concentration camps, knowing that she was going to be liberated. Her own sister, though, lost hope and became embittered. In the midst of the concentration, she was able to maintain hope and even have compassion for the people who did it. You know, Richard Wombrand, the Lutheran pastor in Romania, you know, arrested away under communism for 15 years, being beaten, could have compassion actually, for the very people who would beat him, because he knew they were going to have to answer for it. But he knows he can walk in there because his life is not in the power of these people. That's what hope's able to do. Hope's able to give you perseverance and strength to see the world in a new way. I mean, what happened a year ago on the first time of Advent, right? That was after we got a judgment from the judge. And it's easy for somebody, I mean, I actually think, you know, when we, 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 we struggle, I think, generally in our culture here because we're so lightly oppressed. To even understand, to even have hope. You know, our idea of oppression is, you know, that store was supposed to be open at 7. <laughs> Do you know how long I've waited in line here? You know, this is, oh, I'm so oppressed. You know, it's really helpful for us to be oppressed sometimes in some ways so we could take hold of hope and get our hope out of this world. And actually, in many ways, being able to face a court thing and say, wow, this, you know, even like personally, being slandered and things said, and you can't really, you have no control over that. And a judge coming down there, you know, really unjustly taking away a building and, and assets and all that kind of stuff. And realize, it's Advent, the story of Advent is that you actually have no power. A judge has no power over us. Yeah, you get building, it, whatever, you do whatever it is you do down here. You know, but we are people of hope. 
We're people of God. We follow him. We're, in many ways, it was liberating. And it was healthy for us, wasn't it? Did you find it was, I thought it was, this is, I don't know about you, but I found it was incredibly healthy for, I'm not saying I'm, I'm glad, but man, I think all of us took hold of hope and took hold of God in ways that we had never done before. Thank you, Lord. And we all went, wow. We say a church is a people, not a building. Church is a people, not a building. Thank you, Lord. And hope allows you to do that without bitterness. Hope allows you to do it with compassion, not anger. You know, compassion for those who are acting blindly in darkness. Compassion for a judge who's just doing the best they can. You know, but a flawed, broken person like anyone else. You know, so, but that, that's one thing that gives you hope. But another key thing is to realize that with the coming of Jesus is we want to get our hearts right before him too. Because we're going to have to face the one you know, who has put us there as a servant. So this idea of this introspection of, Lord, have I let idols come into my heart? Have I, in the midst of trying to serve you here, am I, am I serving money? Am I serving my pleasure? Am I serving power? Am I living in fear? To pull these things out. Say, Lord, I want to live holy for you. I want to serve you now and face you blameless in this generation. A mentor of mine said this. He said, we, we don't savor God because we settle for junk food that ruins our appetite for him. It really sticks with me, you know. And it is hard, isn't it? I mean, I, I, you know, once you feel guilty, I mean, right now to live in this broken world is to have so much junk food thrown at you, uh, telling you here's the things that's important in life. Here's the thing where you're going to have pleasure. This is what you really need to find peace and satisfaction. Do this, do this, do this, do this. And all of it ruins your appetite, doesn't it? I can't tell you how many times I have uh, set out to have a, even a deep time with the Lord and I stupidly pick up my phone. Why did I do that? Think about something else, look at that, and I go, where did I, all this time I was going to spend with God, I just ate a bunch of junk food, feel sick from it. Yeah, I mean, it's just a silly example, but the idea that this stuff happens all over the place, doesn't it? And we want to set our hearts to him savor him, remove our idols. In many ways, that's really what Advent's about. Advent's this unique time to uh, set apart our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, what is in there? I want to I open up. I want to uh, be clean before you. And even as we come to the great moment at the end of it, Christmas, it's the, in many ways, what Christmas is, is the, um, that God fulfilled the promises the first time, didn't he? just as he did, and we know he'll fulfill his promises again. And as he came, so he will come again. And we take assurance and we take joy in his coming as we come out of this penitent season. You know, today, I mean, this is one of the things in, as we do communion, traditional thing we say at communion, almost every, every time we do it, is every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do what? You proclaim his death until he comes, as Paul said. And the communion's really about longing for his coming. It's about taking hold of his grace in the moment, his presence now in the midst of this broken world as we long for his coming. It's about cleaning our heart out on a weekly basis. 
and saying, Lord, here's all the junk, here's all the garbage. Forgive me of this, Lord. Make me clean before you. Renew my strength, renew my relationship, renew my hope. Place my hope solely on you again. And cleanse me, Lord. We proclaim his coming at this table. We proclaim that he is going to make the world right. We proclaim ourselves as his servants. We ask for his forgiveness. We ask for him to renew us and strengthen us that we may go forth like John the Baptist into the world to give the knowledge of salvation, to shine light into the midst of darkness until he comes. Let's go to the Lord in quiet. Ask him to open up your own hearts and to cleanse them. Jesus said, come to me, all you that are weary and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. On the night before he died, Jesus took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, broken, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And as it said, every time you eat this bread, you drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord of all, God of grace, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these, your gifts of bread and wine. So that this bread we break and the cup we bless might truly be a communion with you. By your Spirit, unite us with the living Jesus, that we may truly sense his presence. Unite us now with one another, that we may truly be one. And as this bread is Jesus' one body for us, send us out to be the body of Christ in the world. Now let us pray for his kingdom to come in the words the Lord gave us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. These are the gifts of God for the people of God.